Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. This episode is somewhat unconventional. It's a live event, and I know that this is a history podcast, not a film or pop culture podcast, but it was a live event that was about something uh, near and dear to me when I was growing up, and that was claymation. Uh, claymation, that was a thing with the California Raisins and the Domino's Noid, and it was a pop culture juggernaut for about five minutes in the 1980s. And as a kid growing up in Portland, it was also, you know, really important to me because it was made here in my hometown. Uh, so this is about the rise and fall of that medium, specifically Will Vinton Studios, uh, and they were the ones who copyrighted the term claymation, who were known for claymation, and who eventually, well, suffered along with the decline of claymation. Uh, this event was put on by Stumptown Stories. That is a local history collective that I am involved with. And every month, uh, on a second Tuesday of every month, we get a bunch of writers and podcasters and history popularizers together in a bar, and we will give talks on some aspect of Portland or Oregon or Pacific Northwest history. Uh, so if you are in the area, uh, please do check that out. Uh, Jack London Bar, second Tuesday of every month. This particular night was fun. Uh, I talked about claymation. My colleague J.B. Fisher, he talked about uh, rock music in Portland, Oregon, and you know all of the riots and filth and great stuff that accompanied that. Uh, and the voice that you're going to hear first on the podcast introducing me is Doug Kank Crispin. Uh, Doug Kank Crispin is the host of the highly excellent Kick-Ass Oregon History podcast. So if you're looking for something else to listen to, give that a look. And I have been a guest on Kick-Ass Oregon History a few times. All right, enjoy. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Stumptown Stories at the Jack London Bar. Thank you for joining us. So that, of course, is Dream of the 90s, which, um, I don't know. <laughs> Here we are, right? So, so it's, it's going to be a very fun night. Um, got a couple of things going on. There's going to be claymation conversations and uh, some classic 90s Portland rock and roll as well with a slightly reedy slant, I think. Heard uh, JB and uh, Dave earlier talking about reed bands. It was like... It was like a 16-ounce serving of entitlement. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. But first, Joe Streckert's going to get up and talk about claymation. Uh, Joe, of course, is often found in the pages of the Portland Mercury. He also happens to write for the Portland Mercury, too. Um, he, he wrote a book about Polybius, which is a video game that will make you puke. Um, you should read it and probably not play the game. But you should check that out for sure. And what else? Oh, Interesting Times Podcast, of course, which comes out weekly, which is fucking phenomenal. Um, so you should absolutely check Interesting Times out, one of my faves. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Joe Strickland. All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, by the way, my notes are on my phone. That's why I'm going to be looking at my phone. Not because I'm like tweeting this whole thing. No. I'm talking about wide, never expanding social circle. Yeah, I want to begin uh, by asking you guys a um, random and pandering question. Uh, do you like dinosaurs? Yes, of course you do, because you are at a history night in a bar and you're a bunch of nerds, so yes, you like dinosaurs. Um, 
Did any of you guys grow up watching dinosaur cartoons or shows or movies on TV? Yes, you did. Yeah. That's where you're getting to, right? Yeah. It was Land of the Lost. There was like Land of the Lost. There was Dino Riders, which was dinosaurs with like, you know, robot stuff on top of them. Uh, when I was a kid, one of my favorite pieces of dinosaur media was a short movie that was simply called Dinosaur. And Dinosaur was told from the perspective of a kid who was around my age in the 1980s. He was in elementary school. Um, up at a chalkboard giving a class presentation about dinosaurs. And he talks about how some dinosaurs eat, you know, plants. And some dinosaurs eat other dinosaurs. And uh, some dinosaurs have a brain in their butt. Which apparently isn't, apparently isn't true anymore. But back in the 80s, we thought that the really big dinosaurs had butt brains. And this particular movie that was one of my favorite pieces of dinosaur media, um, one of the things that really blew my mind was the visual style. Because unlike other stuff that was, you know, people talking or, you know, cartoons, uh, this was blocky things of clay in dinosaur shapes, you know, sort of morphing and molding themselves over the screen. It was in claymation. And, and what blew my mind even further was when my dad told me, you know that claymation stuff? It's made where we live. It's made in Portland. I was like, what? And I thought, movies, they don't come from Portland. Movies come from, you know, distant foreign lands like California. Um, but no, apparently, yeah, he said, yeah. That was made, you know, across the river on the west side of Portland, Oregon. And I was like, no. And he was like, yeah. But really, um, for a couple of years, in the, late in the middle of the late 1980s and into the very early 1990s, uh, Portland, Oregon had an animation and pop culture powerhouse that enchanted kids like me and also adults. That was Will Vinton Studios. And so tonight, I want to talk about the rise, the kind of like happy middle point, and the inevitable fall of Will Vinton Studios, uh, Portland's pop culture powerhouse that made everybody like totally into raisins for about five minutes. So it began, it began in the late 1970s, well, 1975, with a movie called Closed Mondays. And there is a still from the film Closed Mondays behind me. Um, Closed Mondays, it is a short film, it's only about eight minutes and seven seconds long, about a drunk that goes into an art gallery, and because he is totally inebriated, he sees all the art twist and morph and do just weird shit around him. And this movie won an Oscar for Best Animated Short. This was uh, the first big claymation work by Will Vinton and also his collaborator, Bob Gardner. Will Vinton, he had been a Berkeley architecture student. He was originally from Oregon, but he went to Berkeley. And when he was in Berkeley, he uh, got into animation in the usual way by being an architecture student. And he was really into Gaudi, you know, that guy who makes buildings that look like beehives and there's that giant unfinished cathedral in, in Spain that big thing that's supposed to have 18 spires when they finally finish it, probably a really fitting metaphor for like man's hubris or something like that. And Vinton said that he wanted to, he was a filmmaker, he had started in live action, but he was inspired by Gaudi's images and he wanted to make animated, um, animated images and figures that kind of had that same sort of curved, organic, beehive looking aesthetic um, in talks. Vinton constantly says that he had to 
put away the T-square to make this work. Um, so, he is making short films. He's making short films about the Berkeley counterculture. Uh, eventually, he and his buddy Gardner, who's this like far out Berkeley stoner, you know, hippie dude, um, they collaborate on this movie. And Close Mondays really is just two guys in a basement being weird, making art. And it is one of those things where the medium that they were working in uh, really affected. Uh, how the film turned out. So I mentioned earlier that it's a short movie about a drunk who wanders into the art gallery, an anarch gallery. Um, there was a reason why the character was a drunk. Uh, because they wanted these kind of wobbly looking, you know, figures. They, because they wanted things that looked like beehives and the like, and they were working with clay, uh, they couldn't actually get the guy to stand upright and stand still. Uh, their main character kept sort of wobbling from side to side, uh, and they figured, you know what, why don't we just make that part of it? Um, this thing was very, very labor intensive for these two far out Berkeley, you know, cosmic dudes to make. Uh, all of eight minutes uses 11,520 individual shots of the drunk and the art all changing and morphing and the like. Um, I think that Closed Mondays is kind of emblematic of everything that would be awesome and also not awesome about Will Vinton Studios in that it was really, really visually compelling and interesting and kind of rad to look at, um, but didn't really have much going on below the surface. Uh, after Close Monday, what's won an Oscar, Vinton and Gardner, they got a whole bunch of attention for it, and they started getting what real money was, commercial work. And so they start making short films, but they also start making commercials. So they make a, a few other short films, for example. Yes. An adaptation of The Little Prince. Um, yeah, the adaptation of The Little Prince. Uh, this is one that also kind of, you know, it, it got to me when I was a kid. There's a, he, for example, meets a guy who lives on this tiny planet. He's a lamplighter. And the tiny planet goes around a whole lot. It takes about a second for it to make one day. And he lights the lamp and puts it out. And lights the lamp and puts it out. Yeah, Little Prince meets this dude who's basically like space Sisyphus. Um, and he happens upon a bunch of other characters on these little sort of meteors and planetoids and everything. And they all have their own different little weird deal going on. Uh, they also did an adaptation of Mark the Cobbler, Rip Van Winkle, and also commercials for Rainier Beer. And they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And Throughout the late 1970s and early 1980s, they are now a reasonably sized animation studio doing niche work. But it's time to step into where the real money is, and that's movies. Oh, and that's a still from Dinosaur right there. Um, that's, uh, that's Herb, he's a Styracosaurus. Um, Herb would later become part of a duo where the Styracosaurus was like a Roger Ebert analog and the uh, Tyrannosaurus was a uh, Gene Siskel analog and then they would talk about movies and like uh, Gene Siskel would want to eat Roger Ebert? I don't know. But yeah, that is, that is still in the movie Dinosaur Illustrated. Some dinosaurs eat plants. Look, he has a salad. If they really, really wanted to be taken seriously in a creative sense, they would have to make a fe uh, feature film. So 1985 saw two big forays into Hollywood uh, for Will Vinton Studios. And I think that if these two ventures had gone better for them, um, the entire story of Will Vinton Studios might have changed. So 
Uh, one was The Adventures of Mark Twain. Who here has seen The Adventures of Mark Twain? Yes, those of you who haven't, you should see this movie. Um, this movie is about Mark Twain uh, on a steampunk airship in space. And, you know, uh, Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer, and a friend of theirs, they stow away on a ship, and they find out that he's chasing Halley's Comet because he was born on Halley's Comet, so he wants to, like, find Halley's Comet again. And at the end of it, Mark Twain rendezvous with the comet and basically turns into this giant, fiery, like, space Jesus situation. It is amazing. Kind of sounded like a spoiler. Oh, whatever. You don't go there for <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry I spoiled a 30-year movie. Um, yeah, and The Adventures of Mark Twain, it has, it's vignettes. It's stuff from Twain's work that is turned into uh, claymation sort, shorts. So very much the Mark Twain in a, like, steampunk airship chasing a comet is the framing device uh, for all of the, like, more rad parts of it. Like, probably the single most terrifying bit of animation that anybody has ever committed to cellulite. So, if you haven't seen The Adventures of Mark Twain, the highlight and lowlight of the movie is the part where the characters meet Satan. And he is one of the most off-putting and creepy and just bone-chilling uh, figures of evil that have ever been put on film. And Satan in this story is not presented as, you know, malevolent or cackling or anything like that. <clears throat> Satan just tells him that life is meaningless and everyone's going to die. And he does it by making a little kingdom out of clay, and then the little clay people are running around living their little clay person lives, and then they just turn into a big ball, and then the ball goes into darkness, and then the door closes, and that's the end. Uh, I really like this movie. I think the image is hard to make. I really like this movie. I really like the adventures of Mark, uh, Mark Twain. Um, I think it's the, an awesome movie that you could watch while getting altered in all sorts of really exciting ways. Um, and I cannot, and I cannot confirm, but I suspect that Will Vinton and other people at Will Vinton Studios uh, probably thought that their target audience were people sitting on their couch uh, ingesting a number of controlled substances and thinking really weird thoughts about all the like trippy and terrifying things that are uh, out before them. However, it was an animated movie in 1985, so of course it was marketed as a kid's movie. Um, what ended up happening is that the distributor for The Adventures of Mark Twain uh, released it almost exclusively for matinee showings, so that you can have your little pack of like, you know, squirming five-year-olds or whatever other children beings you had on you. I don't have any kids. I don't know how children work. And you can say, hey kids, let's go sit in the dark for two hours. Um, and because it was almost exclusively marketed to children and was very much not a kid's movie, um, it kind of sort of flopped. And Vinton, uh, in various talks about this movie, has says that he remains, I get the impression that he remains extremely um, upset with how the distribution, marketing, and release was happening. Because it's not a fucking kids movie. Um, it's a kids movie in the way that like Fantasia 
and wizards and the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings and American Pop Star Kids movie, an American Pop is a kids movie. Uh, it's not. Uh, bam, pow, cartoons aren't just for kids anymore. Uh, but in 1985, though, also saw the release of another movie that Will Portland's own Will Vinton Studios contributed to. And that was Return to Oz, which is also extraordinarily rad. Who's seen Return to Oz? Okay, if you haven't seen Return to Oz, watch it, because this shit is creepy, it's amazing, it's more of a sequel to the book than the movie. Uh, Dorothy goes back to Oz, but she might also be like totally insane. Uh, Oz has completely gone to shit. Uh, the Scarecrow is king, but he kind of sucks at it. Um, there's also like a robot, and there's a pumpkin man, there's a talking moose head, um, and the bad guys are the gnomes. And we're not talking about David the gnome here. We're not talking about like, you know, little guys who have illusionists as their preferred class and they can, you know, speak once a day with a burrowing mammal. No, not that kind of a gnome. We are talking about basically rock elementals. And the creative notes that Vinton and his team got was they wanted villains who would move through rock the way fish moved through water. And they said, okay, um, that's weird, but sure, we're in the business of like making weird visuals. We will create for you this villainous sort of uh, people that move through the earth as if it was mere liquid. And hence the Gnome King there, uh, that you see right there. Uh, the Gnome King is, again, freaky looking and amazing and extremely creepy and effective. Uh, but unfortunately for Will Vinton Studios, Return to Oz was also sort of a flop. So they have made their entree uh, into the world of feature films, but they have still not really taken hold. Uh, they have still not really been part of something that is big and commercially successful. Critically successful, cult classically successful, but not like, you know, successful, successful. They've done a lot of work for exposure, is what I'm saying. <laughs> but don't worry, don't worry, there's money out there. There's something that they can get into. Um, and that is advertising. Ad Let's talk about where the real money is. The real money is in using your creative talents to sell somebody else's shit. Um, for example, pizza. Um, one of their most successful ad campaigns was the Noid. Um, the Noid for Domino's Pizza was a donkey man in a gimp suit who wanted to do stuff with your flat pizza. I don't know what was going on there. Uh, and, of course, the California Raisins. Um, prior to 1986, raisins were seen as kind of an undesirable, weird, flavorless health food. And the... I know it's false. Nature's candy. They are nature's candy. <laughs> You know, my mom was a hippie vegetarian, and she would like give me raisins in my lunch, and that would be like my dessert. No, it was great. I didn't, I didn't know it was. I didn't know it was supposed to be weird and grody. I thought raisins are delicious. Yes. This, this is a collaboration between a grape and the sun. It's great. So, the California Raisin Board, uh, they want to improve the poor image of raisins. Um, you know, in American popular culture, and they hire on this kind of like weird counterculture-y um, creative firm to do so, and Will Vinton, uh, Will Vinton Studios makes the California Raisins. 
Now, when I say raisins, of course you think um, a bunch of Motownish dudes <laughs> who sing Marvin Gaye songs, because of course you do. Um, I want to know uh, what kind of chemicals or creative process actually led to this, uh, but they were successful. Uh, they were primarily voiced by Buddy Miles, who was a former drummer for Jimi Hendrix. So this is a dude who uh, played with probably the single greatest guitarist ever, um, and then was the primary voice for, well, raisins. Um, he had a weird life. Uh, but these took hold. At post-1986, there's all kinds of other California Raisins merchandise. So this fake band of Raisins, they released not one, not two, not three. They released four albums. Um, there are real bands that have released fewer albums than that. Big Star, one of the greatest bands of all time, has two of them. There's, there's more, there is more audio of the California Raisins than there is of Alex Chilton. Um, they also are in multiple TV specials. They have one called Meet the Raisins. Uh, there is a cartoon show, uh, and they make over $200 million in media deals, merchandise, that type of thing, t-shirts, toys. I had California Raisins toys when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, a little beneath your figures, because if you were a kid in the 80s, you were required to have those. Um, I do feel like there's something that we do need to talk about, about the California Raisins. Um, so one thing I was wondering about this is uh, whether or not the California Raisins were problematic. Uh, that's the term I think we're supposed to uh, use. So I checked the authority on this sort of thing. Uh, and that is the Yo Is This Racist podcast. <laughs> and they kind of grappled with the issue of whether or not the California Raisins, who are all supposed to be like old wrinkly black dudes singing blues songs, whether or not that was racist and they came to the conclusion, uh, I have no idea, probably just weird. <laughs> oh yeah, and uh, there were so much attention to the Raisins. Yes, that multiple celebrities like Michael Jackson had themselves raisinified. Um, that is one of the weirder, th less weird things that Michael Jackson ever did to his image. Um, however, um, like Michael Jackson's appeal, uh, nothing is forever, and the raisins were a fad. And, sorry. Thriller's a great album. Um, and, you know, fads fade. And one of the things that is most loathsome to pop culture, I think, is the recent past. Uh, something that was very, very recently cool, like after you get past the area where that was cool, no, 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 you drop that. Like, you wait maybe five, ten years, and it'll be cool again. Um, for example, right now, you know Battlestar Galactica? Yeah. Okay, Battlestar Galactica is not cool right now. It is of the recent past. In ten years, Battlestar Galactica will be awesome again. And you can cosplay a Starbuck at a con. But like, you're gonna have to wait another like five, 10 years or so. But it'll come back, don't worry. Maybe that was a weird example. But yeah, about 1990, the raisins are kind of like falling out of the pop culture imagination. And there's oversaturation. So right here, right here, is what would have been one of the biggest parts of the California raisin empire uh, that never actually uh, got out there into the world. 
And that was a game made by Capcom called California Raisins, The Great Escape. It would have been a Capcom side-scroller, a la Mega Man or DuckTales, um, where you would have played as the Raisins, whose primary weapon would have been throwing great jelly beans. And just like other Capcom games, yeah. You'd have a select screen, and then after uh, you know you did like all the stage selects, and then you'd go to the final thing and fight Dr. Wily, and there you go. Um, but it was canceled because of lack of public interest in the California Raisins. So you know, there's a lot of so this is this is a nice place to say that at this point, um, Will Vinton Studios is huge. It's everywhere. Um, it's getting a lot of attention. Uh, they have probably one of the most successful advertising campaigns on the planet. Uh, they were in Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. There was a claymation segment. Uh, they were on Moonlighting, that Bruce Willis show. Um, it's a thing Bruce Willis did before Die Hard. Um, yes, yeah. and and in the late 1980s, there were plans for a claymation theme park in Portland, Oregon. Yes a goddamn theme park that would have been called Claymation Station. So, this is an excerpt from the uh, Oregonian in 1991 about what Claymation Station would have been like. The original Claymation Station business plan called for a 72,000 square foot specialty retail center, a 100 room hotel and small bed and breakfast inn, restaurants and pubs, and a 1,500 seat multi-screen movie theater. A major attraction would have been a pavilion featuring a big-time thrill ride, an exploratorium, an interactive theater, a gallery, and a studio tour, all focusing on Vinton's family of claymation creatures. Vinton also dreamed up an intriguing mix of alleys, fountains, a lagoon, a conservatory, and other public amenities stamped with his style and populated with his characters. Through it all would be Vinton's brand of visual entertainment, a storefront with a face, talking lamppost, a garbage can that burps and says thanks after a trash deposit and claymation creatures peeking out from nooks and crannies, unquote. Yeah, so that's what we could have gotten instead of the Pearl District. Um, think about that. Think about Northwest Portland. Think about Northwest Portland. Um, and instead of having a bunch of you know, like yoga studios and very small dogs and all that, we have a fucking claymation theme parks with raisins and dinosaurs and Mark Twain and everything. But of course we didn't have that because now I'm getting into the part of the story where they've been really successful and now there's going to be the turn and they're going to all like fail spectacularly. The part where night ruins them all? We're getting there, we're getting there, yeah. Um, I will also mention though that uh, the thing that uh, dooms Will Vinton uh, was not CGI. It was not because CGI got popular. Um, in fact, uh, Will Vinton Studios was a leader when it came to CGI. Uh, as computer-generated imagery, like in, mov in movies like Beauty and the Beast, in movies like uh, Toy Story, uh, became more and more like prolific, and they saw that there was a market for it, they said, hey, we're gonna get on that train. Because Will Vinton in talks, he's always said that he saw himself as a 3D animator rather than a clay animator. So, in the early 19, in mid-1990s, about half the studio was given over to 3D computer animation, and they invented the M&Ms, you know, the red and the yellow M&Ms, who are disturbing, because you're talking about food mascots who are talking to humans who are eating the food that is them. And there, there are M&Ms ads that kind of lampshade that. So that's, that's not the narrative that we're going for. Um, now, Vinton gets bigger and bigger, 
and tries to branch out into more elaborate project, uh, more elaborate projects. Um, like, for example, the PJs. Uh, the PJs in the 1990s was a series that was launched by and for Eddie Murphy. Uh, Eddie Murphy approached Vinton about having a regular sitcom where he would play a superintendent at a low-income housing thing, and he would have a variety of like, you know, relatives and friends, and they would have like, you know, they would learn things about life, you know, sitcom stuff. It was not a very good show. Um, and this would use instead of clay, which you had to, you know, form again and again and again, uh, foam figures, uh, and they called it foammation rather than claymation. And uh, those figures were much more durable, and uh, you could like pose them without getting weird fingerprints all over them, and you could reuse them. Uh, and there was Eddie Murphy in it. That's huge. Oh, by the way, um, Will Vinton claims to not know what Gumby was until Eddie Murphy told him about it. Um, I think that this is probably bullshit, but he claims to have independently invented claymation by himself at Berkeley, and then only later, when he got introduced to you know Eddie Murphy, and he was doing the PJs, and Eddie Murphy was like, did you do Gumby? And he's like, no, I didn't do Gumby, what's Gumby? And he's like, oh, Gumby is a clay guy. Uh, I don't believe the story at all. But yeah, he claims to have had no knowledge of Gumby whatsoever. Maybe it was like a Newton and Leibniz, like independently investing calculus at the same time. Who knows? Um, but the other, um, but the other, uh, you know, the other show they did was for UPN. It was called Gary and Mike, and it was about Gary and Mike. They were two friends who had weird adventures. Uh, it was kind of like a sort of how can I put this? It was kind of like a sort of uh, surreal. Like, okay, it was more coherent liquid television. It was kind of like MTV's various liquid television sketches, but with more coherent char characters and plots that actually lasted 22 minutes. Um, both of these shows, the PJs and Gary and Mike, were well received by audiences and critics. Um, the PJs lasted three seasons, though, and Gary and Mike only lasted one. Um, one of the things that was a problem was that they were extraordinarily expensive to make. Uh, both of the shows took multiple weeks, uh, you know, sometimes as long as a month, uh, for just one episode to be made. So to make something that is claymation or foamation, you had to have multiple teams working on different episodes at the same time, all kinds of coordination, it's extraordinary time and labor intensive, and the ratings did not justify the cost. At the same time, uh, Will Vinton and Will Vinton Studios still wanted to break into feature films. I figured that's where the real money and prestige and success is. So, what can they do? What can they do? Well, they can open it up to private investors. So, who can they talk to to be a private investor in their company? Well, how about, you know, people in Portland who have money? How about folks nearby who, uh, you know, want to invest in other things that will keep money in the community uh, and that will grow Portland as a major center of, you know, culture and art and visionariness and all that. How about Phil Knight? Yes. So, they talk to Phil Knight. They say, hey, buddy, um, we want to start making movies. Um, how about it? Now, what was unusual about this is that Phil Knight, he apparently was usually skeptical to these investment pitches. He was most of the time not very receptive uh, to this sort of idea, but he said, sure, here you go, 
uh, 15% interest in Wilvin Studios, and he didn't even ask to join the board. He's like, you guys do what you want. Um, the only real condition that he had is that he wanted, you know, his kid to be an intern there. <laughs> he wanted his kid, Travis, to be an intern there. Uh, this is Travis Knight. Uh, Travis Knight is... <laughs> yeah. So, Will Benton's kid, Travis Knight, originally uh, tried to be a rapper. And he called himself Chili Chi. Um, he had one album. It was called Get Off Mine. Uh, his dad basically bought him a recording studio. His dad also uh, hired him a producer. And he also, he also hired his kid a posse to go around with him. He had one, al uh, one album called Get Off Mine. Um, I tried to listen to it in preparation for this talk. Um, it's, all, it's, it's all on YouTube, so, because I'm not paying for that. Uh, I could not sit through it. I could not get through his album that's all about how hard it is to be white in Portland. That's not an exaggeration. So, Travis Knight, or Chili T's rap career, uh, does not work out for him. His album is a complete and utter failure. And despite having everything you know, laid out and bought for him, um, there are some things that you just can't find, like street, street cred or lyrical ability or anything else. Uh, he says, you know what I'll do now? I'll be an animator. So he's originally brought, up, brought on Will Benton Studios as an intern. And when he is starting up with the company, uh, a lot of the other people at the studio don't actually know who he is. Uh, they don't know that this kid, who is, his first job is doing the whiskers on Eddie Murphy's character's face. So they need grunt work. They need some guy to like manage all the like annoying little details. So they have him do the hair, particularly the whiskers, which are apparently difficult to uh, animate, uh, on the PJ's character. And that's his first job there. Uh, but after being an intern, uh, in less than three years, he'd be CEO of the entire company. So meanwhile, Will Hitton Studios is opening up a place in Los Angeles. It is this very large, very opulent uh, business suite that they have. And, in, and it's basically uninhabited. They do not like, they do not actually get the business that they need to justify, uh, justify having it. And within a few short months, uh, they basically blow through $7 million. Um, yeah, in less than a year. So they don't have work. The California raisins are kind of over. Um, their TV shows are getting canceled. Uh, what do they do? Well, how about turn to their biggest investor? So they said, hey, Phil, <laughs> we're having some trouble here. Um, and Phil Knight was happy to keep this project that he had invested in afloat, but if he was going to invest in it, he wanted to own it. So, he got a controlling interest in Will Vinton Studios. And when he got a controlling interest in Will Vinton Studios, that meant that Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, probably the single most wealthy guy in Portland, Oregon, suddenly had the ability to restructure it and call the shots, and 
Okay, it's really easy to make Phil Knight look like an evil dude in this narrative, like the evil Scrooge McDuckian, like, you know, businessman coming in and laying everybody off. But think about it from his perspective. If you have a company that was, like, losing work and burning through cash and wasn't being successful and you just poured a bunch of money in it, yeah, of course you'd want to fix it up. Um, Phil Knight decided to fix it up with nepotism. Um, yeah. Uh, well, there was two things he did. Uh, one of the things was get rid of Will Vinton. Uh, Will Vinton was known to be okay. I don't want to like make too many sort of like suppositions about his character, uh, but he was known to be sort of hard to work with. Uh, primarily a creative guy, a guy who had a very particular vision, but not somebody who was good at at all delegating or uh, collaborating or doing anything that didn't involve you know making I don't know weird swirly things for stoners to look at. Um, so yeah, he was, and, he, and in talks, he actually has admitted he is not a businessman. Um, I, I watched several talks that Will Vinton gave where he's like, let me tell you about my times as an animator, and he just said I wasn't a businessman again and again and again. Um, Will Vinton was out. Uh, he was no longer with the company, and he also no longer had any rights to use the term claymation or any of the other intellectual property he had helped develop. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the intern, Travis Knight, who had just been on the board. Chili uh, tea. Chili tea, absolutely. <laughs> uh, who had just been like, uh, who had just been doing um, the hair on the PJ's faces. He is elevated to the board and eventually the CEO. Um, so think about that as, as a beautiful American rags to riches bootstrap story where you go from being like one of the lowest ranked people at a company to leading the company and all you need to have is a ridiculously wealthy man uh, for your father. That's all you need. That's all you need. You can live the dream too. You get a really, really wealthy dad who has made the single most recognizable shoe in the world. And you two can do great things. God bless America. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other, the other big gift. There was one other big gift though uh, that the company got, and that was Henry Selleck. Uh, Henry Selleck is not Tim Burton. It's important to remember that. The Nightmare Before Christmas was not actually directed by Tim Burton. His name is on the movie. It's not his movie. It's Henry Selleck's movie, and that he also directed James and the Giant Peach. So he was the guy at the time who had directed actually, you know, successful uh, movies that involved stop motion animation. They take him on board, and they also change the name of the company to Leica, uh, named after the space dog. I have to admit, it's kind of a cool name for a company. Um, and apparently, Phil Knight likes K's. Like his name is Knight. He likes the letter K to be in the things that he's into. So Leica presented itself as yes, seriously. Yeah. So yeah, uh, that's one of the big reasons why I like this name of the company. Uh, their first project was uh, Coraline, an adaptation of an adaptation of a Neil Gaiman novel. Excuse me, an adaptation of a Neil Gaiman novel. Uh, then there was Paranorman, um, which was all about a kid, zombies, and this really adorable gay jock kid. And uh, there's also the Box Trolls, which I haven't seen, but I hear it's delightful. And nowadays, Leica is still going strong, and it's kind of made out of the corpse of Will Vinton Studios. And to be completely honest, I feel deeply ambivalent about this. Because on one hand, I miss Will Vinton Studios. They made that totally rad dinosaur movie. 
They made the adventures of Mark Twain. Uh, they uh, like created bizarre images that I am sure, even today, would be really awesome to just stare at while you're kind of altered on something. But at the same time, I do have to admit uh, that Coraline Paranormal, at least, I haven't seen the box trolls, are a lot more narratively coherent than anything Will Vinton Studios made. Even their strongest work, The Adventures of Mark Twain, is basically a bunch of shorts with a framing device. Um, and I think that the writing and the inability, the well, lack of good writing, and the inability to create coherent characters over a long period of time, or like long-running uh, plots, was a weakness for them. So, 1991, there was a critic for the Los Angeles Times called Charles Solomon. He said that Vinton, of Vinton, quote, his animation is so sophisticated, but his stories are so weak. Having demonstrated he can do anything with clay, I wish he would do something, unquote. How's that for a backhanded compliment? I know. So yeah, um, when I look at this sort of arc and narrative, um, you know, I feel like when Will Vinton, um, if Will Vinton had been content to just make commercials and shorts and weird stuff, where it's a single idea, like a drunk going into an art gallery, or kids talking to Satan, uh, or the little prince finding some guy in a planetoid, and it's just a thing that's a few minutes long and you play with that, um, and he just stuck there forever, he probably could have stuck around forever. But he also would have found that kind of professionally unsatisfying. When he reached for something greater, movies, that's when he fell. And if you were turning this into a movie itself, you would play that up. If you were turning this into a movie or book or a narrative or something like that, yes, you would turn it into the fucking Icarus story. And then you'd put him on a Led Zeppelin album cover. Yeah. Um, and I think when I look at Leica today, I see kind of a trade. Um, you trade away the kind of singularity of vision that Will Vinton and Will Vinton Studios had for the kind of like accessibility and coherence that Leica has. Granted, that's coherence with the like weird vision of like Coraline, you know, going into the other world and meeting her mom and dad who have buttons for eyes, but still more narratively coherent. And, you know, Chili T's ridiculousness, you know, to one side, I don't actually know which one is better. You know, I don't actually know how I should feel about having this kind of successful, sort of cool movie studio in Portland that is now, again, made from the bones of something I used to really like. Don't have a tidy revolution for you guys. But, thank you very much. If you haven't checked out the Adventures of Mark Twain, watch it! Amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Strecker. Thank you, Joe. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. Upon reflection, I now realize that this is the second time that I have recommended Return to Oz on this podcast. Seriously, it's great. Check it out. Um, as always, go to iTunes. Give us a rating and a review. That would be great. Also, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. Sign up for a monthly donation. Uh, it is important to me in kind of a you know moral, philosophical, you know principled way that this podcast is ad-free and that I work for listeners rather than advertisers. So if you could go do that, that'd be great. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Joe Streckert, Tumblr, joestreckert.tumblr.com. Also Facebook, facebook.com slash interesting times with Joe Streckert. Uh, click like, click follow, click all those things. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.